Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, which is a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about beavers and birds. Beavers are where we started, at least in a North American context, by, you know, going through and trapping them to near extinction led to the transformation of these riverscapes into simpler systems that are no longer recognizable. We here in the Rocky Mountains live along what is known as the Central Flyaway, essentially a large superhighway for birds migrating between their summer and winter grounds from Canada to Mexico. Then, as it is Women's History Month, we'll hear from a pioneering advocate for women's rights and family rights. Former U.S. Representative Pat Schroeder was the first woman to represent Colorado in the U.S. House of Representatives. She died earlier this month. One of the most discouraging things has been the lack of progress on so many issues that I really care about, Um, issues that if somebody had told me when I got elected we'd still be trying to get through, I would never have believed it. From the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, it's the Regional Roundup. The dam building activity of beavers can alter physical habitat for their own benefit as well as for the benefit of other fauna and flora. It can also help create resiliency in a river corridor that's facing a warming climate. Joe Wheaton, a fluvial geomorphologist and professor of riverscapes at Utah State University, spoke about beavers and their relationship to our rivers with Peggy Hodgkins on Science Moab on KZMU. Well, it, it starts in in this country um, and, and North America with why we really came here in big numbers and uh, why Europeans came and, you know, explored and settled North America. And, you know, the myth that it was Christopher Columbus in search of gold, I mean, they didn't find much. It was the fur trade and beaver pelts were worth far more than gold. There's a whole long history of various insults that lead to you know why our rivers are structurally starved today but it starts with the fur trade and the trapping of beaver to sell the pelts which had really good felting qualities and to make top hats and fashion and top hats for or, and, and the hats for the soldiers etc in europe so that's what it starts with basically what lags about 10 to 20 years behind our extirpation of beaver as we move west across the continent is settlement, right? And that usually starts with, you know, clearing out forests and we start clearing out forests to get timber, to create open spaces for agriculture. And then we want to move that timber. So we have big log drives, we move it downstream. If there's a bunch of log jams, then it's hard to move those logs. So we straighten things, we blast things out, we clean them. Agriculture comes in, grazing comes in, we overgraze, you know, these 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 systems. You fast forward to the 1950s and we add, you know, post-World War II confidence and arrogance in engineering and, and whatnot and diesel power. And now we, you know, further straightened and make things efficient. And uh, from the 30s to the 80s in this country, we had races between the Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers to put up as many big dams as you could 
everywhere to uh, reclaim the West, to wet it up by controlling this water. It's a lot of management of these uh, systems with single purposes in mind. Well, we didn't really start, you know, studying rivers in earnest until rather late in this game. And we started making measurements of rivers and looking at all these things. And we were looking at messed up, structurally starved systems. I mean, this may be stating the obvious or asking the obvious, but why do we care then about restoring these riverscape ecosystems? So a lot of people will jump right to, well, we should just care because they have intrinsic value. We should care for species conservation. You know, we should care about these ecosystems. All of those things are good reasons and true. But more fundamentally, fresh water is key to our survival as Mm -hmm. a species. Without it, we are done. And riverscapes are what provision and at more appropriate ra- rates, sort of slowly release um, this 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 water off and through the landscape and in the process, providing so many, you could call them ecosystem services. Um, so for example, if I am a cattle rancher, if I have a degraded riverscape, it doesn't matter if the cows are down there in the, in the summertime and they got something to drink, they don't have a lot of good things to eat. If I have a wetted up uh, riverscape, Now I'm growing really good green groceries and I've got much better forage production, right? And you do that by slowing the flow and getting more structure, you know, back in these systems. If uh, I live in a a city and there's, you know, a watershed upstream of me and a river that runs through town, you know, if I have a really efficiently drained, you know, network of, of, of the riverscape above me, well, when I have runoff events, Everything piles up all at once really fast and creates really dangerous conditions for flooding when when the, those sort of events come and they're coming with increasing frequency. If I have a healthy riverscape, it attenuates that flow. It knocks the peaks off those floods. It holds on to that water and it puts it into, you know, groundwater recharge and holds on to it in the in the in these riverscapes and 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 really provides resilience to that that disturbance event. And if I have a major catastrophic fire that is working through a, a, a landscape, if I have a desiccated, you know, uh, structurally starved riverscape, the fire just marches right through that thing like there's nothing in its way. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I have a riverscape that is uh, in this healthier condition, that sponge might just be some refugia during the fire for wildlife or livestock, etc. It can also be this really important buffer that can either slow the advance of the fire or in big enough uh, riverscapes, it can actually stop it and act as a break. And so there's there's all sorts of benefits, especially as the climate crisis just is so much more pronounced and in our face. It's about resilience. It's resilience of our ways of life. It's resilience of communities. It's the resilience of these landscapes, of working lands, of ranching, etc. Our survival is tied to the health of these riverscapes. And so how do beavers fit into the equation? of this restoration? (laughs) Well, I mean, beavers are where we started, at least in a North American context, by, you know, going through and trapping them to near extinction, led to the transformation of these riverscapes into simpler systems that, that no longer recognizable. Beaver are not 
the answer or the thing everywhere, but it is this charismatic little character, which I don't know if I have an irrigation diversion and a canal, I mean, it's also can be an absolute pain in the neck that I'm fighting, you know, to make sure it's not flooding my canal or blocking off my, you know, diversion works or, or whatever. But in parts of the, of the riverscape where the water isn't deep enough on its own, that they are safe, they manipulate that water depth by building dams. Yeah. And so if I'm on the main stem Colorado River in, say, the Grand Canyon, there's a ton of beaver in the Grand Canyon, but they aren't building any dams. They just have a bunch of bank lodges and, you know, they're eking out a fine in existence because there's enough food and the water's deep enough for them to have an underwater entrance to their lodge. Yeah. But you get up into tributaries or you get onto side channels outside, let's say, the Grand Canyon on other parts of the Colorado and beaver manipulate those settings to their liking. And they, they do that by building these, these amazing dams. And unlike dams that we're used to that, you know, are supposed to last for a really, really long time, you know, these dams are ephemeral. They come and go. And with that coming and going of those dams, we get much more complicated habitat, much more diverse habitat that provides much more niches for a whole range of different species. And so the beaver are not the only example of structural forcing, but they're one of the most compelling and obvious examples. And they're also very relatable. There really just aren't that many species that take and manipulate the environment to their benefit the way, the way humans and the way beaver do. And it just so happens that when beaver do this, it's also to the benefit of so many other species that co-evolved with them, including ourselves. That was Joe Wheaton, a fluvial geomorphologist and professor of riverscapes at Utah State University. He spoke about beavers and their relationship to our rivers with Peggy Hodgkins on Science Moab on KZMU. And you can find that full episode of Science Moab at kzmu.org. This summer, Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado will embark on a mission to bolster the health and resilience of the Mancos River. And they're looking to beavers and what they can do in rivers as a model. Drew Spear, the physical science programme lead at Mesa Verde, says beaver dams have the ability to create long, slow-moving water and pools of deep water, which create ideal habitat for fish. Spear told reporter Chris Clements from KSJD, that they're using a system called low-tech process-based restoration. And that was developed by Utah State University. It's really the foundation is, is simulating naturally occurring processes, and two in particular. One is beaver activity, so um, simulating beaver dams with a wooden structure called beaver dam analogs. The other natural process that they focus on is, is just naturally occurring wood accumulation, so wood piles in a river system. And so they really just have taken these two types of structures, all made out of wood. So um, low tech in the sense that it, it doesn't take a, you know, heavy machinery or anything. You're really just using wood to your advantage and, and kind of structuring wood in a way to kind of mimic these natural processes. The park will start implementing restoration efforts in the stretch of the river south of the Mancus Valley. Pretty much downstream from all um, agricultural t- pullouts on the river and water rights. So what we've been seeing in the last two decades is is this you know higher frequency of losing flow in, in the reach of the river. 
So pretty much in drought condition years um, where everybody's stressed, you know, irrigators are stressed for water. You know, there's just not a lot of water available. What we've seen is that the Parks Reach has periods of, of low and no flow conditions. That's really obviously not desirable. Um, you know, losing flow can be really detrimental to the fish species that we have. The park has um, what are considered the three species of fish. They all get lumped together and are referred to as the three species. That's the flannel mouth sucker, the blue head sucker, and the um, round-tailed chub. So we've seen our numbers really kind of drop off, especially since the big fire in 2000, the Bircher fire. The population numbers did kind of come back a little bit, but what we're seeing is that when we lose flow, there's only water remaining in kind of these isolated pools that are that are naturally formed. So, you know, when we lose flow in the reach, you know, we might have an isolated pool here, and then you might not have another one until, you know, a half mile downstream. So the, the river becomes very disconnected, a pool here, a long dry up run, and then another pool. So both of these structures can, you know, hopefully help us in these kind of really bad drought years. And the one piece about the pools and particularly about fish is really creating these refuge pools so that, you know, we can have a higher frequency of pools when we lose flow, but hopefully fish can kind of find, you know, refuge in these pools that, that we're creating with these structures particularly um, the structure that's simulating wood accumulation is called a post-assisted log structure. So if you picture a river, you know, a lot of people picture rivers as being this kind of straight, um, nice uniform thing, but rivers naturally move and bend and have multi-channels. And if you picture a wood pile and a river coming at the wood pile, you're going from kind of this vertical force to where it hits this wood pile and now the wood pile is causing that water to kind of move more laterally. What that does is it allows for some erosional processes to happen. You get a little bit more um, diverse um, habitat in the river and it has the ability to carve out pools. So we really hope that these post-assisted log structures can kind of boost our pool numbers so that when we do lose flow, there are more places of refuge for fish to be able to seek out when when flow is kind of ceased in the river. Speer added that the simulated beaver dams are also intended to attract beavers themselves to the area, who would then take over and maintain the structures. Beavers have been doing this forever, um, and, and it's hard to think that humans can kind of match the abilities of a beaver. But we, you know, we humans work very efficiently. We might We may not be able to build a dam quite like a beaver can, but um, you know, we can do a lot in a short amount of time. So we really hope that whatever we end up building, this complex of structures will actually be taken over by beavers. You know, we, we, we hope that they can add on to it or regularly maintain these structures that say we get a high flow event and blows out the beaver dam analog that we were, that we built. You know, ideally, a beaver's out there, you know, reconstructing it and repairing it or making it better or shoring up certain areas of it and only improving upon it. That's really the self-sufficient goal. You know, whatever we build, we want 
for beavers to continue to maintain that and kind of support them and their habitats and giving them kind of deep water that they can find refuge from predators in. So ideally, you know, it's like we build something and then the beavers are like, oh, this is pretty adequate. Maybe we'll, you know, set up shop here and, and kind of continue on um, what's already here and, and improve it and make it better and help maintain it. Drew Spear, the physical science program lead at Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado, which is seeking to bolster the health and resilience of the Mancos River. Thanks to Chris Clements of KSJD for that report. You're listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. I'm Maeve Conran. Beavers play a role in the habitat of a bird that is iconic in the Rocky Mountain region. Tens of thousands of sandhill cranes are making their annual spring migration, flying over parts of our region as they transition from winter habitat to breeding range in the north. As we hear next in Rain and Shine, produced by KVNF in Paonia, the cranes often build their nests on beaver dams. We here in the Rocky Mountains live along what is known as the Central Flyaway, essentially a large superhighway for birds migrating between their summer and winter grounds, from Canada to Mexico. And while we are about a month off from peak migration, I wanted to kick off this season with a local legend whose activities you may have noticed over the past few weeks. The Sandhill Cranes have started their annual pre-nesting gatherings, and if you are lucky, you may see them in the fields or wetlands from San Luis through Grand County. Recently, we have even seen new flocks move into Montrose, Delta, and Mesa counties as well. The sandhill crane is one of 15 species of cranes that are alive today, and we here on the Western Slope even have our very own subspecies, the Rocky Mountain Sandhill. The original Colorado native, these iconic birds are one of the oldest bird species on the planet. The ancestors of these big red-headed beauties, who now fly over our highways and walk among the wheat and barley fields, were alive in an era where their neighbors were the mastodon, mammoth, and dire wolf. At four feet tall with a seven-foot wingspan and three toes that have long, sharp claws, the sandhill crane is a fierce protector of itself and family. Both the female and the male can defend their nest from raccoons, golden eagles, coyotes, and pretty much everything in between. They have to, as they do not nest in trees. Their third toe is too small for gripping branches, but just perfect for slow walking. And when they are not flying, they do spend most of their time on the ground. The crane's favorite nesting place is on top of a beaver dam or lodge. In fact, beavers play an essential role for the cranes. 50% of Colorado sandhill crane nests are made alongside or right on top of that big-toothed furry lumberjack's own home. Talk about a good example of rural housing density. A crane family will return to its nest year after year and have been shown to return for as long as 30 years. A family bird, the nesting pair of cranes, shares incubation of two eggs, and when the young birds, which we call colts, yes, just like baby horses with those same long legs, hatch, each parent takes one of the two young ones under their wing and walks with them throughout the day as they forage for food. 
omnivores, sandhill cranes eat everything from snakes and worms and small water animals to roots, shoots, grubs, and insects. Their metabolisms can even handle the modern, high-carb foods of wheat, barley, and small potatoes, which they find with their long, strong beaks in our winter croplands. The sandhill crane is a successful example of how we as humans can learn to live with and even support wild creatures. In 1973, the bird was listed on the endangered species list and conservation and resource management efforts started a few years later. At the time, there were just 25 documented breeding pairs in Colorado. As of today, there are between 250 to 300 breeding pairs of our own hometown greater sandhill crane. The story of the sandhill crane shows that good things are possible when we put our attention to them. You've been listening to Rain and Shine, a production of the Learning Council, produced by Corey Stanton and written and narrated by me, Calla Rose Ostrander. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Rain and Shine at kvnf.org. March is Women's History Month, so today we remember a pioneering advocate for women's rights and family rights. Former U.S. Representative Pat Schroeder died in Florida earlier this month at the age of 82. She was the first woman to represent Colorado in the U.S. House of Representatives, where she served for 24 years. In 1992, she spoke with Marty Derlin of KGNU in Boulder about her work and about the lack of female representation in Congress. I think my frustration is that the issue list never gets shorter, it only gets longer, so hopefully we'll get some more women elected so we can change this place. How long have you been in office now? Um, I am in year 20. At the end of this year, I've been here 20 years, which makes me the dean of the women. And I must say, um, as you reflect on that, one of the most discouraging things has been the lack of progress on so many issues that I really care about, Um, issues that if somebody had told me when I got elected we'd still be trying to get through, I would never have believed it. But I think it's because we only have 29 women out of 435, and women are just, uh, women's issues are just treated very lightly here. Can you identify some of the issues you're speaking about? Well, all the work and family issues impact on women the most because women are the caregivers in most families. And we have a workplace that just doesn't recognize caregiver roles at all. In fact, you're penalized if you have to be a caregiver. If you call in and say your car broke down, oh, that's fine. If you call in and say um, your child care broke down or your spouse is terribly ill and you have to get them to the hospital, that is not fine. So it's very interesting that we have a totally non-family workplace. We also find that the tax code discriminates against women. Social Security still discriminates against women. Many pension systems, if you look at the health care, the women have not been treated very equally among national research. Um, We're finally getting that turned around, but it will take us to the end of the century to know as much about women and disease as we know about men, and that's if we keep everything on track. As you know, we passed a civil rights bill that doesn't treat women equally. It uh, gives them lesser remedies. It caps their remedies. It doesn't cap others' remedies. That should be modified. 
Um, we also have the tremendous push on anti-reproductive choices for women, whether it's the gag rule. I mean, imagine a country that won't allow doctors to talk to women about the range of options if they're getting tax money, for crying out loud. Um, it means family planning research being cut out. It means all sorts of things. So women haven't been taken seriously in the workplace, taken seriously in the tax code, taken seriously in any of these areas. I say to women, if they went to see an obstetrician or a gynecologist and he pulled out a little hand puppet and said, now we're going to do your exam, you'd walk right out the door because he wasn't treating you with any real respect. And yet that's how Washington has treated issues around work, family, women, their bodies, every other such thing, equal pay. It's been like they've wiggled a little hand puppet at it and not taken it seriously. How do you feel about uh, a sense of solidarity with women in the country now? Is there, do you have that sense? Did that, did the Clarence Thomas hearings uh do anything for for uh, for that feeling of uh, being united? Do you feel as if there's a strong women's constituency out there? What's your sense of that? I think it's stronger. I think there's a lot uh, more left to do. We're constantly improving, but uh, I think very often women find that the first person to attack them is a woman saying why do you just care about women's issues well i don't but you know if we don't bring these things up no one else does i'm more than willing to let anybody else bring these up believe me but i've been sitting here waiting and it's funny how they never come up unless we're there pushing all the time and working in other areas too but i i I hope women begin to understand that and that we all start working more and more together. When you go read the suffragettes' speeches at the time they were trying to get women the right to vote, they were so optimistic that we would really use our vote um, very, very creatively and differently uh, to bring ethics, good government, uh, caring, all sorts of things into the system. I'm not too sure we've done that yet. And I hope that we begin to get a real breakthrough as we reflect on it, and maybe it'll finally come to pass. Do you have a, um, an idea of why women have not progressed further in the political system in this country? Uh, we've had the vote for decades and decades now. Um, well, I think we've allowed a lot of groups to whip us around. Um, you know, there's been some groups who've said, oh, those women are out there trying to make sure you have to leave the home and go out and go to work. Sometimes people would believe that. When I first came, there were people saying that uh, child care was socialism and how could I be for that? That's what they had in Russia. And I think we're beyond that. Um, there were people who were saying that the Equal Rights Amendment was going to increase the divorce rate and force us to use unisex johns and, and put everybody in combat boots. Well, I hope people are finally well-educated beyond that. But you find people who would believe it, who truly, truly would believe it. And that's very painful. Um, as long as we've got a few people who are going to hang in there and believe it, uh, we don't win.
That was Pat Schroeder, the first woman to represent Colorado in the US House of Representatives, speaking with Marty Derlin on KGNU back in 1992. 31 years after that interview was recorded, there are now 125 women serving in the US House of Representatives. Pat Schroeder died earlier this month at the age of 82, and you can listen to that entire interview at news.kgnu.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KZMU in Moab, KSJD in Cortez, KVNF in Paonia and KGNU in Boulder and Denver for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.